Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're excited that you're here today. And I want to invite you right now to take out your Bibles and to turn in them in the Old Testament to the book of the Judges and chapter number 14. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that Bible and turn in it to page 192 in the front half of it, and you would be at Judges chapter number 14. Now, Today we're going to continue a series that we debuted last week entitled Iron Man, the Saga of Samson. And as we went through that, I began to think more about the movie, the original movie Iron Man, and so I went and rented it just to refresh my thinking a little bit. And if you remember the original movie, the pivotal issue for the main character, Tony Stark, has to do with his heart. He'd received some shrapnel in his heart area, and the key to him was this arc reactor, this magnetic force that was placed next to his heart to protect his heart. And that arc reactor is really the secret of his success as a superhero. And as I was watching that, I thought, you know, there's some similarities there with Samson himself because the pivotal issue in Samson's life is his heart. And the secret to his spiritual success or his spiritual failure is what goes on in his heart. And really the same thing is true for us in our life. When you start talking about the story of Samson, you're talking about something that is really wild. The saga of Samson goes back 31 centuries ago, more than 3,000 years And you look at Samson and you find someone who is a candidate for the all-world hall of fame. You look at someone who has startling physical strength and amazing intellectual ability. He is able to concoct riddles that astound his enemies. He's able to tear a lion apart with his bare hands. He's able to take on 1,000 men single-handedly armed only with a jawbone. Now, that, men and women, is wild stuff. In fact, it's wild on wild. But if I were to say to you this morning, do you know that you are like Samson, that we are like Samson? Your first response would be, sure. (laughs) When does the lion wrestling start? But we need to remember What it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, where Paul says there, now these things, speaking of the people in the Old Testament, these things happen to them as an example for us, and they were written for our instruction. So that what happened and is recorded in the life of Samson was written for you and written for me, and the principles that we see in Samson's life are pertinent for us us. Now, last week, as we began to look at the saga of Samson, we looked at his beginning, and we saw that from his birth, he was called to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite was someone who was living out a vow of dedication to the Lord and consecration to the Lord, someone who was vowing to be an example to others in the area of dedication and consecration to God. 
And in a way, that's very similar to us. Those of us who know Christ personally from our spiritual birth have been called to live an example of dedication and consecration to the Lord. In Romans chapter 12, it tells us there that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's my calling and your calling also. Last time we saw that Samson's success was based on two things. Number one, God's blessing in chapter 13, verse 24. And it was also based on the strengthening of the Holy Spirit in chapter 13, verse 25. Guess what? Look at those two things. Our spiritual success is based on the same things. Based on God's blessing in our life and based on the strengthening of the Holy Spirit in our life. See, we're very similar to him. And while his story is wild with a capital W-I-L-D, while it's larger than life, there are great lessons in this saga that God has designed for you and for me. Now today as we continue the saga of Samson, Samson, we want to look at his exploits in chapter 14 and verse 4 all the way through chapter 15. Now, before we go to those verses, I want you to see this, that there are some two heart issues that we're going to see emerge from Samson's life. Let me give them to you, and you can look for them. The first heart issue was misarranged life values. We're going to see as we look at Samson's life that he was severely infected with personal pride. And things like prosperity and popularity and sensuality were idols in his life. Now, I want you to think about those things. Personal pride, the idols of prosperity and popularity and sensuality. And you will notice that those are all idols that we all struggle with. I struggle with them, and you struggle with them. And so there are answers that we can learn and insights that we can have as we look at the saga of Samson. The second heart issue that we see in his life is this. He had a deficient view of disobedience, a deficient view of disobedience. We're going to see that Samson lost sight of something that often followers of Jesus can lose sight of, and that is this, that disobedience travels with a companion, and that companion is consequences. And Samson suffers from that deficient view. He forgot that disobedience has a companion whose name is consequences. Now, as we left off last time, we were in chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, and I want to remind you that Samson makes a deliberate choice in his life to disobey God. He makes this choice to marry a pagan Philistine woman, which was a violation of what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we look briefly at this bad choice that he was making and how it grieved his parents and how they appealed to him, don't do this, you shouldn't do this. And he said, remember, this is right in my eyes to do this. But what I want you to notice, which we didn't look at, we stopped short of it last time, is verse 4. As they appeal to him about this poor decision violating God's word and disobedience, it says, however, his father and his mother did not know that it was of the Lord, 
For he, God, was seeking an occasion against the Philistines who were at that time ruling over Israel. Now, that seems a little weird to us. His disobedience was of the Lord. Well, what it's really saying is this. Even though he was choosing to do wrong, God was still in control. God didn't panic. God was still going to use this situation in his plan. Even when Samson mucked up the situation, God was still at work. He was still planning to use Samson to accomplish his purposes. And so look at what happens in verse, verses 5 and 6. Samson goes down to Timnah with his father and his mother. And they came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And apparently this was a little rest stop that they took here. And, and they get separated, father and mother, from son for just a few moments, apparently. And what happens is a young lion comes roaring towards Samson. And in verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he, Samson, tore the lion apart as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, no weapons there. Now, what's going on here? What does this really mean, he tore the lion apart as one tears a young goat? Well, the picture here is of what they would do in that day is they would take what they called a young goat and they would roast the goat. And after it was well done, the picture was taking the legs of the goat and pulling them apart. In our vernacular, we would put it this way. He tore the lion apart with his bare hands like you would a well-done turkey. You know, just simply grabbing it and tearing it apart. And you think about that and you go, wow, how did he do that? No weapons and just with his bare hands he tears the lion apart. Well, the answer to how he did it is there in verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. And we need to remember that in the Old Testament era, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a follower of God was a temporary thing. The Spirit of God could be there. The Spirit of God could leave. In the New Testament era, the presence of the Holy Spirit is a permanent thing. But God was teaching Samson here a lesson. There was a little preview going on. Remember, God was saying, you're called to begin to deliver the nation from the Philistines. And what's happening in this story? What's this communicating to Samson? God is saying to Samson, all the resources that you need to take on the Philistines, I'm going to provide for you. Which, by the way, is the same thing as true of us today. Every resource that we need to live all that God has called us to be, he will always provide. Every resource that we need. So this was, in essence, a reassurance from God to Samson. But despite that reassurance from God, he immediately chooses to make another error in his life. And we see that in verses 8 and 9. Notice he was beginning to return to take his wife, and he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. Now, we don't really know what's going on here. One thing we do know, this was not a normal situation. Apparently, in some way, the heat had dried out the carcass of the animal. But what would you expect to find in the carcass of an animal? 
you'd expect to find maggots. But instead, we see something highly unusual, a swarm of bees and their honeycomb in the body of the lion. Now, I believe this unusual event was a test by the Lord. If Samson learning anything, well, notice he makes a very clear choice to disobey what God had said in his word. Because he says he turned aside to look at the carcass, and there was a swarm of bees and honey, and so he scraped the honey into his hands, and he went on eating as he went. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some of that to them, and they ate it. But, the big but here, he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. See, this was a choice to disobey because a Nazarite, part of their vow was they vowed not to touch a dead body, not to touch a carcass. And he knew that was his vow. He knew it, but he did it anyway. And you see it says there in verse 9 that when he rejoined his father and mother, he did not tell them. This is part of this problem of deception that we see in the life of Samson. You see what his focus was? What's his focus here? As long as other people don't know, I can do what I shouldn't be doing. As long as everybody else doesn't know. I really love the definition of character that says this. Character is what you are when no one sees. And that is so true. So you, you think you know some things about me. You're able to observe some things about me. But you really don't know like God only knows. Because what I am when no one sees is what my character really is. And Samson had lost sight of that vital truth. He's thinking, I can do what I want to do even if it's wrong as long as no one else knows. Now, in, in chapter um, 14 and uh, verses 10 and following, we have what was a very customary thing in that day, and that is when you were getting ready to have your wedding, you would have what was called a wedding feast. It preceded the wedding rather than following the wedding. And what happens is, because he is in an unknown area, he's never been here really before to meet people and doesn't have any of his friends here, they provide 30 companions, in essence, 30 groomsmen for this wedding feast, 30 Philistines, people he doesn't really know, but he needs somebody in his party. So these 30 Philistine men are going to be his groomsmen. And what we see here in these next few verses is the surfacing of his misarranged life values. We're going to see here how severely infected with pride Samson was. And we're also going to see that prosperity and popularity were little idols in his life. In other words, his life was aimed and focused on being prosperous and being popular. So look at verses 12 and 13. You got these 30 guys, he doesn't really know them. Samson says to them, let me uh, now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me, if you get the riddle, 
within the seven days of the feast, and you find it out, then I will give to you 30 guys, each a linen wrap and a change of clothes. But, verse 13, if you are unable to tell me what the riddle is, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. Now, here's what it's important to understand here. In that culture of the day, clothing was the top signifier that you were a prosperous person. And what does it mean when he says, well, 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothing? If I were going to put it in in our language today, it would be 30 sets of designer underwear and 30 sets of the finest dress clothes that there are out there. That was the idea. And here's what he's proposing to them. If you get the riddle, if you win, each one of you is going to have an outfit of designer underwear and and great dress clothes that you can wear to the next Philistine festival. But if you don't get the riddle and I win, I am going to be dressed to kill, literally. I mean, here's the question. What does a Nazarite need with 30 sets of dress clothes? Now, in that day, you have to understand, most people would only have one. He ends up with 30 of them. And remember, the essence of a Nazarite vow was a a vow of self-denial. I'm going to deny myself. My focus isn't on me. My focus is on pleasing the Lord. Well, he proposes this, and they say in the end of verse 13, propound your riddle that we may hear it. So he says to them, here's the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And for three days, everybody's wrestling with, what does this mean? What's the riddle? And they can't figure it out. So they've got a seven-day time frame here. So on the fourth day, They go to Samson's wife. They're not actually fully married yet, but she's proposed and espoused to him. And she says, they say this to her, entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle. If you don't, we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to be a part of this whole feast to impoverish us? Now you have to understand that. You say, why would they say that? Because to give up your set of fine clothes would impoverish you. And Samson's going to end up with 30 sets. Yeah, you have to understand a little bit of of some of the thrust of the the humor and all this. I mean, basically, they're going to this bride-to-be and they say, hey, uh, how's your family fire insurance doing? Uh, One writer put it this way. He said, what they were really saying to her is, worm the riddle out of Samson or get riddled yourself. You and your family. And then I'm just amused by what begins to happen in verse 16. We have this bride-to-be who goes into this, you don't love me act. Oh, Samson, boo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo, you don't love me. You don't really like me at all, do do you, Samson? You like me. I mean, you won't tell me the riddle answer. Oh, boo-hoo-hoo-hoo, Samson, Samson, Samson. Little thing going on here. 
because we got a little scheme. Now I've got a motivation. I have to get the riddle out of my husband-to-be. And with all that little performance going on, it's interesting to me what he says to her at the end of verse 16. He says, look, I haven't told it to my father or mother, so should I tell you? I mean, really what he's saying is this, listen, babe, these are going to be my suits. I'm about to engorge my closet. I'm much more interested in that than I am in satisfying you and your little tears that you're giving me right now. That is only some women can do. She didn't stop there. Verse 7. She went on all the period of the seven days that were left while the feast lasted. And it began to wear on him. And you'll notice the pressure as it's picked up begins to show us something else about Samson. We see a lack of interior inner strength that he has in his life. Where is your dependence on the Spirit of God? She puts the pressure on him, and he buckles, which, by the way, is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen later in chapter 16 with Delilah. So finally, she pressed him so hard, verse 17, that he told her the riddle, and then she told the riddle to the sons of her people. And so the men of the city come to Samson on the last day of the feast before the sun went down, and they say this to him, what is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And Samson knew immediately what had happened, and he says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And you look at that and say, well, he's just calling his wife some kind of a cow. Uh, that's really not the deal. I mean, in that day, heifers were not used for plowing. What he's really saying is, you misused my wife. A wife should not commit treachery against her husband. And you know, I look at all of that and I say, okay, so you're upset that they used some treachery in a bet and they used some manipulation. Who was the one who started the whole thing? You know, you want to say to Samson, what goes around comes around, Samson. And then notice verse 19, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Uh, God graciously comes upon him. Remember that God's overall plan was he wanted to accomplish his purposes where Samson was going to begin to deliver the nation from the Philistines. And so the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, he leaves the town of Timnah, goes down to the city of Ashkelon, and he kills 30 Philistines down there and takes their spoil, and he gives the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. You know, he got all 30 changes of clothing, the designer underwear and everything, and I'm sure he just plops it down at their feet. There you go. You won the bet. I'm paying off. But I want you to notice ultimately what he's thinking in his heart at the end of verse 19, his anger burned. He was ticked off, totally ticked off. And he's not in a honeymoon frame of mind. So he goes back to his hometown with his parents. Now remember, 
The Lord isn't panicking in any of this. His plan is that Samson is to come against the Philistines. But notice this, he leaves to go back up to his father's house that Samson's wife, verse 20, was given to his companion, or literally it's the best man in the wedding. You know, the idea was the father goes, wait a second, after that treachery, there's no way he's going to fulfill his marriage to my daughter. So uh, best man, Philistine guy, come over here and you can marry my daughter. Now, I want you to understand there's a ripple impact that begins to go on in Samson's life. We've had several cases of disobedience, and, and this is the thing about disobedience. Every time we choose to disobey God, it gets a little easier to do so each time. And we're going to see in his life that the more he seems to feed these idols of prosperity and popularity and sensuality, the less he's focused on honoring God and his consecration to God. And the same thing is true for us. The more we feed those idols in our life, the less focused we are on honoring God. Well, it's interesting what happens in, in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. You know, he cools off. He's been angry. And, and now he's thinking about his marriage again, and he has a little twinkle in his eye, and so he has a goat with him, you know, and I'm going to take the goat back and uh, kind of make up. And what her father says to him uh, in verse 2 is, wait a second, I didn't understand this was going to happen. I thought you hated her so much that I turned around and gave her to the best man. Uh, why don't you take her sister, her younger sister, she's probably prettier than, than, he, than she is anyway. And what we begin to see happening in these next few verses is how much the pride of Samson comes out. And you know, basically he's saying to himself this, whoa, it's time for some personal revenge. This is one step too far. What does God say about taking your own revenge in a situation? Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, Never take your own revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we read that and you go, well, golly, Bruce, that would be real helpful for Samson to have known. But you see, that's the New Testament, Bruce. Yeah, I know it's the New Testament. But in that passage, Paul is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35. See, this was a principle that Samson was exposed to. Don't take your own revenge. God says, vengeance is the thing that I deal with. Well, look at verse 3. Chapter 15, Samson says, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. I like the way the NIV translates it. I have a right to get even. And we want to say, says who? Says you? Or says God? He goes, I am going to get even. And have you ever noticed that people do odd things to get even? I was reading the story about a very hacked off woman who was walking along the beach after her marital breakup. 
and she saw on the beach a fancy bottle on the sand. She picked it up, and she pulled out the cork, and whoosh, a big puff of smoke appeared. You have released me from my prison, the genie told her. To show my thanks, I grant you three wishes. But take care, for with each wish, your mate will receive double of whatever you request. Why, the woman asked, that bum left me for another woman. Ah, replied the genie, that is how genie law is written. So the woman shrugged and then asked for a million dollars. And there was a flash of light and a million dollars appeared at her feet. At the same instant, in a far-off place, her wayward husband looked down to see twice that amount at his feet. And your second wish, the genie said? Well, genie, I want the world's most expensive diamond necklace. Another flash of light, and the woman was holding the precious treasure in her hand. And in that distant place, her husband was looking for a gem broker to buy his latest bonanza. Jeannie, is it really true that my husband has $2 million and more jewels than I do and that he gets double of whatever I wish for? The genie says, indeed, that is true. And she said, okay, genie, I'm ready for my last wish. Scare me half to death. <laughs> yeah, a little revenge. People do odd things to get even. And notice the odd thing that Samson does. Verses 4 and 5. Samson goes and he catches 300 foxes. And then he takes torches. And then each pair of foxes he ties tail to tail. And he puts one torch in the middle between the two tails. And then he sets fire to the torches and he releases the foxes. Just picture that scene. And they start running into the standing grain of the Philistines. And it ends up burning up all of the grain along with all of the vineyards and all of the groves of the Philistines. And in verse 6, the Philistines say, who did this? I mean, when you see a bunch of foxes running around with torches between them, you know, you know somebody did it on purpose. And, of course, the answer came, it was Samson. Samson did it. And then notice what ends up happening. So the Philistines came and burned her and her father with fire. And what we're seeing here is a cycle of revenge that gets launched. And this happens in real life with people. You know, they did something, Samson does something. Now Samson wants to do a little bit more. And he says to them, since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you. Then I like the last part. But after that, I'll quit. You know, I'm going to do one more. I'm coming on you again. Ah, then it'll be over. It doesn't really work that way. But I just want you to understand, as he's getting ready to respond in this vengeful way, notice again his motives, how pride-driven he is. He's personally just ticked off. It all goes back to what? I'm missing out on that clothing gold mine. I had the whole thing figured out. I was going to have more great clothes, the greatest sign of prosperity than anybody else. 
Notice that his motive is not for, I wonder how God could be honored in this situation. I wonder how God could be glorified. See, Samson was using the strength that God had given to him really ultimately for selfish purposes. And so we don't know exactly what happened. It's relatively brief in verse 8. It says, he struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter. And he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Etam. What is the cleft of the rock of Etam? Well, it was a rock formation where there's, there was this cleft opening in it. It was an opening where you could only have access into this little area one man at a time. And so he does this vengeful act back, but then he retreats to this little area that he can protect where only one guy at a time could get through it. Now stop and ask yourself the question, what is he doing there? What is he doing there? Why is he there? And I think the answer is he was afraid. He was afraid of the Philistines being out for their next shot. And so he goes and he hides in this little cleft of the rock of Etam. And I believe this, was, this is where God began to communicate to the guy. He's beginning to listen a little bit. He's beginning to ponder what all this revenge is doing. When is it really going to stop? He's pondering all the trouble that he's face to face with, and he begins to seek out the Lord. Well, notice what the Philistines do. They go to Judah, and they want to talk to the people of Judah. And they say, well, why have you come up to talk to us? Verse 10, we want to bind up Samson in order to do to him what he did to us. And then there's an amazing response that we see that happens in verse 11. These are the 3,000 men of Judah who are Samson's people, the people that Samson was to help deliver from the Philistines. And what do they do? Somehow they knew where he was hiding, so they, the men of Judah, go down to the cleft of the rock of Etam, and they say to Samson, do you not know what the Philistine, that the Philistines are rulers over us? I mean, come on, clue in, buddy. What is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. You see what's going on here? Remember we talked about how the people of Israel, in this one of the cycles of the judges, had not repented they had become spiritually apathetic. They had become assimilated into the pagan culture. They're basically saying, hey, we're comfortable where we are. What are you doing? You're upsetting the apple cart. And I don't know if you notice it or not, but verses 12 and 13 to me seems to be a great change in Samson when we look at everything that was happening. Without knowing what's going to happen, you would think, well, he attacks the 3,000 men of Judah. Then no way you're going to take me away. Well, that isn't what happens. He doesn't respond that way at all. He says, swear to me that you, the men of Judah, won't kill me. And they say, verse 13, well, no, we'll bind you up and we'll give you into the hands of the Philistines, but we are not going to kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes. They would be extremely strong ropes and brought him up from the rock. What I see here is a different spirit in Samson, in his heart. At this point, he's trusting God in the situation, which is probably why 
he ends up being listed in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of fame of faith. Here's what I think was happening, that while he fled and he was hiding in the cleft of the rock of Etam, he was thinking to himself as all these circumstances were piling up on him, my life is getting to be out of control. And I think he began to reflect and he began to remember like we need to do when our choices lead to trouble in our life. We need to remember that the adequacy is not in ourselves, but the adequacy is of God. And maybe one of the reasons why God brought you here today is he wants this to be a time in which you might reflect on how you have drifted from where you should be. Now, there are two clues given, I think, that tell, tell me that this is a likely scenario in Samson's life. The first clue comes from Hebrews 11. When you have Samson's name listed, here's part of what it says after that. It speaks of those who from weakness were made strong. I think at this point, Samson was realizing, I am really weak and I need God. And the second piece of evidence that I think God was really working on him and he was open to it comes in verse 18 of chapter 15. We'll look at what happens leading up to this, but you see something very interesting. It says in verse 18, he called to the Lord. First time we see any prayer from Samson. He calls to the Lord, and he says, you have given this great deliverance, which we'll look at in a moment, by the hand of your servant. We see him acknowledging God. We see him having a new perspective of himself. He's not the dandy guy who's going to have all the cool clothing. Now he says, I am your servant God, not the one who wants to strut around with the engorged clothes closet. And so here's what I believe was happening here. I believe him allowing himself to be turned over to the Philistines was a demonstration at this moment of his dependence on God. And you know, the Philistines get excited as he appears, and he's all roped up with those brand new ropes, and they begin to shout, hey, our God won. I mean, we've conquered Samson. And then you come to verse 14, and And notice what happens again there in the middle of that verse. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson mightily so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire. We would say like thread that had been burned with fire. Not two strong ropes, but just literally like thread that had been burned. And he rips those things apart. And then notice verse 15. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. And he reached out and took it, and he killed a thousand men with it. I mean, think about it. He grabbed some dead donkey's dentures, and he kills a thousand Philistines with it. What a ridiculous weapon. What does it indicate? That the power was from the Lord. And then he writes a little poem in verse 16. He says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. In the original, it's very poetic. It would be something like this in English. With the jawbone of an ass, I pile them in a mass. Or actually, he literally says, with the jawbone of an ass, I pile them in two masses. And in verse 17, he calls the place Jawbone Hill. This is wild stuff. Now, when you're in that kind of a wild battle and you take donkey dentures and you, by your own hand, slay a thousand guys, that can wipe you out. And he gets very, very thirsty. He says to God, I I need something to drink. And God rewards his faith and his acknowledgement. 
and he just breaks out this little spring of water that comes right out of the rocks. And then you come down to verse 20. It says, so he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Chapter 14 and 15 take about a year. Chapter 16, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, takes one year. So what this is really saying, there was 18 years of peace. But the next thing we want to look at in the saga of Samson is his end in chapter 16. But before we end today, I want to look at some life response. I want to remind you, I want you to just sit back, and, and if you can, listen here, okay? Just listen a little more carefully. Remember, these things happened to them in the Old Testament as examples for us. And remember, Samson was blessed, and God has blessed you, and God has blessed me. Think of all the talent you have, all the ability, all the privileges, all the opportunities, all the spiritual standing that you have is God's doing. Let me ask you this question. What is your response to that in light of his incredible provision of grace in your life? I want you to do something. You have to do this with your imagination. I want you to look into your spiritual mirror. What do you see when you look in that spiritual mirror? And the first thing I want you to do is an inner life check. Samson had allowed himself to become severely infected with personal pride. Prosperity, popularity, sensuality had become idols in his life. Do a little inner life check. Have you been worshiping at any of those shrines in this past week? The shrine of pride and prosperity, sensuality. Maybe it is that the Holy Spirit is saying to you today, it's time to shift your focus back to me. And as you look in the spiritual mirror, one other thing I want you to do is to do a disobedience check. Remember, disobedience travels with a companion called consequences. And we see it in Samson's life, the disastrous marriage, the betrayal, the cycle of revenge, the pile of trouble that comes to him. And I want you to do a disobedience check. Could it be that you're messing where you shouldn't be messing? Are you walking and living where you shouldn't be walking and living? Have you been thinking, it's okay as long as no one else knows? And it may very well be that the Holy Spirit wants you to do a course correction today. Well, let's pray together as the worship team comes to lead us in our final song this morning. Father, we just thank you for the saga of Samson, and we realize that you have designed us to learn from all of this. And Father, may we be men and women who are honest enough to do a little inner life check. Are there some idols that we're worshiping right now more than desiring to honor God? And even in this area of disobedience, we can all get off the path and Father, if we have anybody here who's messing where they shouldn't be messing, would you remind them that disobedience travels with a companion called consequences, and consequences are not fun. Thank you for giving us the lesson of Samson. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.